the blessedness that's ours this morning to be able to gather in the peaceful and friendly confines of this place to adore and to worship the majestic and lovely God of heaven and to appreciate all that He has done for us and continues to do for us each day. It truly is a tremendous thing to consider the magnitude of those blessings. Certainly this morning a number on our sick list have been mentioned and certainly our minds are continuing to rush to and with them as they are attempting to recover from those maladies and hopefully that will certainly happen in the very, very near future. Certainly as I stand before you this morning and we give some thought to the next lesson in our series, this series dealing with premillennialism, one of the things that we have so readily found is that though each Sunday... And each week is somewhat of a new topic in that series. Nonetheless, it asks us to give consideration to some matters that are ever so pertinent to our day and our time today. As you can see, installment number eight will involve the 70 weeks of Daniel. Brother Vestal read from the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel just a few moments ago. Might I ask as we begin our lesson this morning to at least briefly summarize where we have been and also, of course, where we shall be able to continue our study this morning. We learned in the opening lesson about the need for Bible authority when it comes to discussing the end of time. You and I, as mere mortal people, do not know what the end of time shall bring. In fact, only God and His revelation can speak to that matter. And thankfully, when we turn to the authority vested in the Holy Scriptures, we shall be able to appreciate and to embed in our mind the true character of what God has stated about the end of time, which stands greatly opposed to what men have said. On so many occasions and in so many ways, men have allowed their imaginations to run wild, rampant if you please, to the extent of presenting all kinds of sensational and fabricated stories. Many books have been written, television shows and movies alike, and they have all done rather well it would seem. People are interested in these matters, and thus in the third lesson, why did the Lord come to this earth the first time? We saw very clearly the Scriptures lay out for us the reason for that coming was to deal with a sin problem, not to reign in Jerusalem, not to establish a physical kingdom, but in the character of that first coming, it too was not the fact that Jesus was rejected by surprise. The Old Testament had foretold it. It was well known, in fact, from the prophecies that, in fact, he not only would be rejected, but that, in fact, he would die. In the next lesson, we furthermore appreciated those kingdom prophecies and found in them a foretelling of the church and its marvelous character. The church, you see, is not a fly-by-night scheme simply introduced because the Jews rejected the Christ. It has been a part of the eternal plan of God from the very foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. It is thus to be noted that the rapture, as so often taught, is not going to happen. Where the Lord is supposed to appear in some invisible, secret fashion and whisk away certain individuals and leave others behind, the Bible teaches that nowhere. Furthermore, there's going to be no tribulation period either, as we learned last Lord's Day morning. This period that is referenced from Jeremiah 30 and Matthew 24, those passages must be taken from their context to teach what sometimes we're told that they do teach. That brings us to our eighth lesson today, in which we shall turn our attention to the 70 weeks foretold in Daniel. These turn out to be a very critical part of the premillennial idea for reasons that we'll discuss shortly. 
But you and I will hopefully find in them the truth of what God would have us to know about these 70 weeks and what, in fact, they stand for. In fact, at this time, would you please read along with me as we read from verses 24 to 27 of Daniel chapter 9 and seek to look rather interestingly at this noble prophecy from the days of old. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate." For centuries, even those who were of Jewish background appreciated the specifics of that prophecy. God apparently was so majestically revealing some things that contained chronological information so that the studious Jew could know when the Messiah was supposed to come. As the years of the Old Testament rolled by, you and I might often have wondered, did they know when the Messiah was supposed to come? Did they have any scriptures to which they could turn and say, the time is about here? And the answer to that question is yes. And this must be exhibit A in that list of prophecies. If they could determine what the 70 weeks represented, it would have told them when the Messiah would appear, when the Christ would in fact come on the scene, and when the greatness of all that the Old Testament spoke about concerning the kingdom would in fact approximately come to pass. However, this text has been lifted rather significantly from its position. And in cases, it has been used to teach things that relate rather dramatically to premillennialism. In fact, if you noticed with me as we read that, this period of 70 weeks was divided by the inspired penman into various segments. There was a period of seven weeks, a period of 62 weeks, and then a final period of, seven, and a final period of one week. The premillennialists have done the following. They have asserted that the first 69 of those weeks occurred precisely in chronological fashion as specified before us, but that the 70th week, the final week, was delayed. There is, in fact, a long gap, so they say. The first 69 occurred in exact order, but there is a rather large gap of several thousand years between the 69th and the 70th weeks. And thus, so we are told, the 70th week's fulfillment yet waits the end of time, when Christ is supposed to come back and do these things that you and I have just read. You'll notice that the desolation spoken of in verses 26 and 27, they point that to the tribulation. 
and they say there is the specific discussion of one week. There's the seven-day tribulation, the seven-year tribulation period. In it, difficulties will abound. So, if in your study you will put this in the context of what we learned last Lord's Day, in which we discussed that tribulation, we today must take it one step further. What did Daniel say, and what in fact was the information revealed to him? This opening slide will help us to appreciate the setting of this place, and also that will go a long way toward aiding us in seeing what precisely was spoken to Daniel. Daniel was in fact a very interesting man. He had been taken captive by the Babylonians in 606 B.C. When Nebuchadnezzar and those armies rolled toward the Jerusalem area, in the first wave of captivity, that young man Daniel, and you might remember his three friends with him, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were all whisked away and taken captive, taken far from their homeland, no longer near that temple place that had now been destroyed, no longer in their beloved city of Jerusalem. They had now been taken to the distant place in Babylon. However, as we learn about the nature of Daniel, he still maintained a great studiousness to the things of God. A study of Daniel is overwhelmingly positive. We learn in Daniel 1.8 that he purposed not to defile himself. Despite the fact he was so far from home in the midst of heathen pagan individuals who had little concern or care for the things of God, he determined to remain faithful and loyal to Jehovah God of heaven. He and his three friends, of course, met great persecution. Daniel was thrown into a lion's den at one point. His three friends were cast into a fiery furnace at one point, And yet God protected all of them. Might we notice, in the nature, though, of Daniel, we learn something else about him. As we read Daniel 9, verse number 2, the opening part of this same chapter, it says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Daniel was a learned person and he studied the book of Jeremiah. He had access and he was diligent in his study of it and from that book he learned that the years of the captivity were shortly to end. That is to say, a number of years had passed, and by the time we arrive at Daniel 9, he knew that the 70 years of captivity was about over. He knew that because in the book of Jeremiah, as you can see in Jeremiah 25.12 and Jeremiah 29.10, God had revealed through Jeremiah the duration of the captivity. It was to be 70 years. Thus, because Daniel was taken captive, he knew exactly when the count began. And thus he knew, counting 70 years, when that count would end. When he began to appreciate that fact, Daniel was overwhelmed in appreciation to God's revelation. And you'll notice in the things that followed, he lay himself proverbially prostrate before God. Beginning in verse number 3, we have one of the most beautiful prayers found anywhere in the Bible. In fact, it may well rank only second to the Lord's intercessory prayer of John 17. Beginning in verse 3, continuing all the way through verse 19, Daniel openly lays himself and his people before the God of heaven, 
thanking God for his blessings, but confessing his sins and those of the people and desiring that God would in fact bless the people with the ability to return from the captivity, to reestablish the temple and to worship as God had commanded. It was truly a beautiful prayer. Amazingly enough, we find in verse 20, God answers that prayer immediately. I would ask you to note the language. Verse 20 says, And whiles I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yea, whiles I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the, sun, about the time of the evening oblation. Even before Daniel had completely concluded his prayer, God dispatched the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel, in fact, not only gave the tremendous answer to Daniel's prayer, he gave Daniel more information than perhaps Daniel had initially requested. Because, you see, a part of Daniel's prayer had been a beseeching God to be able to rebuild the temple, verses 16 and 17. But you'll notice with me, not only did Gabriel affirm that that would happen, the temple would be rebuilt and it's going to take 49 years for it to happen. Gabriel went on to say, Daniel, this is what else is going to happen. And he unfolded 70 weeks of prophecy, taking them all the way to the time of the Christ. Now the book of Daniel was written it would seem in the 6th century B.C., rather strong evidence to that point. And hence, the angel Gabriel unfolded 500 years of human history right before the eyes of Daniel. And we have it recorded for us in the verses we just read this morning. I would invite your attention as we then shed some light on what does this say? What is this prophecy of the 70 weeks? First of all, as we begin to turn our attention toward it, you should notice rather clearly that it does involve 70 weeks. Verse 24, the first two words of that verse are 70 weeks. Literally, if one is reading from the Hebrew, it is 77s is what that means. Thus, as one appreciates the character of some 70 weeks, that immediately challenges us to understand this. God meant what he said. By whatever consideration the 70 weeks is to be numbered, it was 70 consecutive weeks. It is not possible to look upon that and separate 69 of them from the last one, insert several thousand years and still claim it's 70 weeks. It is 70 continuous weeks from the time the numbering begins. Interestingly, certainly, you and I must turn our attention and ask, what does the 70 weeks specify. Should we take that literally? Is that to be taken symbolically? We'll answer that question very carefully and also rather dramatically in just a moment. For now, I would ask you to notice what is supposed to happen during the time of that 70 weeks. Verse 24 is in many ways such an amazing verse. I would ask you to again notice 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Six things are specifically asserted 
that will take place as this 70 weeks comes to its end. The first three of them seem to fit so well together that I bundled them into one sentence. Again, those are the first three to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity. Without a doubt, that refers to the atoning work of Jesus the Christ. What did the Christ accomplish when he came? Was it not, in fact, to finish the transgression? Was it not, in fact, to make an end of sins, to provide a means whereby the humanity would not suffer the guilt of their sins, but rather that those sins could be forgiven, they could be removed and remitted? Could it not also be noted that it was he who principally brought about reconciliation because of the problem of our iniquities? Those three things point so dramatically to every nature, character, and degree of sin. Notice there are three different words used. There's transgression, there's sins, and there's iniquity. As if to affirm Christ's blood can handle any and all types of human sin, so long as an individual submits himself to what God has commanded relative to the plans of, of obedience and salvation. It is such strong language as to what would take place. At this point, it's no wonder that the Jews of the Old Testament era looked forward to the fulfillment of these things. They looked forward to that time when there'd be an end of sins and there'd be an occasion to appreciate reconciliation finally to God in a full and complete way. You notice some verses beneath that that point us to Christ's fulfillment of those matters. In 1 John 2, verse 2, we notice He's the propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Not many verses earlier in 1 John 1, verse 7, we learn on that occasion that if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanseth us from what? All sin. Not some sins, most sins, a few sins, all sin. And notice, in the end of sins, that prophecy was not affirming that there was going to come a time when humans would no longer sin. The end of sin meant the end of the guilt of it, whereby the blood of Christ would forever remove that for those who would submit in earnest and honest obedience to that which he had commanded. That's only three, though, because notice, there's three more to be viewed and considered. Two other verses that seem so strong in regard to those first three. In Romans 5, verse 10, we're reminded about the impressiveness of Christ's reconciliation of us to God. Where on that occasion, we're reconciled by His blood. When He shed that blood at that old rugged cross, that blood was the very agency, the very agent, by which you and I could be brought back to a right relationship with God. A relationship that had been tarnished and marred. A relationship that had been made undone by the character of sin itself. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 14, we have the Hebrew writer joining in the refrain of this concept. For on that occasion, as the Hebrew writer speaking of Christ, he said, of him, that this Christ Jesus was the very one who didn't offer the blood of bulls and goats, but he offered his own blood for our redemption. And furthermore, it was by the shedding of that blood that your conscience and mine can be purged from all the evil, dead, and sinful works that had formerly 
encompassed and surrounded it. That's the Christ, and that's what he did. In terms of those last three, you'll notice, speaking of the Messiah, it was specifically affirmed by Gabriel to Daniel that he would bring in everlasting righteousness, unending righteousness. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17 describes that righteousness in this language. Paul wrote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God, revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In the gospel is God's righteousness, that righteousness spoken of by Daniel so many centuries earlier. Furthermore, we can appreciate in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the closing verse to that chapter, that God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The opportunity and the blessing to understand righteousness as that which is available through the Christ. But notice, in the fifth place, the Messiah was to seal up the vision and prophecy. To seal up... The Hebrew word seems to suggest a relationship to conclude, to seal up into the sense of complete. You and I, in thinking about matters like that, are well aware that the New Testament affirms that the days of miraculous prophecy and the days of miraculous matters related to visions have ceased. Those today who teach that it has not ceased would do well to think about and revisit texts like this one. The Messiah upon coming would seal up the vision and prophecy. That seems to suggest two things. One, he would fulfill the greatest of the visions and prophecies of the Old Testament concerning him. Luke twenty four forty four reminds us of that truth. But as far as men's capability of miraculous prophecy, Paul expressly wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 8 that that has passed. We do not have those to whom God directly talks to today and shares his word separate and apart from the revelation of the word of God. That doesn't occur this day and time. That day has passed. Hebrews 2 verses 1 to 4, another passage that reminds us that that was for an earlier day, a day before the completion of this book. But once it was completed, there's no longer the need for that. And in fact... It was sealed up and completed. As you give some thought to those things, the sixth and final one is yet to be listed. We also read that the most holy was to be anointed. Literally in Hebrew, that phrase most holy means the sacred, sacred. The special, specific, predetermined one was to come. That would be literally the most holy. Likened unto, in some ways, the holiest of character. And certainly when we consider what the Lord brought about, Jesus fits that description so very well. In the Old Testament, in terms of anointing, at various times we're able to see the anointing of prophets, the anointing of priests, and the anointing of kings. And might we give some thought to the fact that Christ functions in all three roles. He is the great high priest, as we see in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. He is the king over his kingdom. Is he not king of kings and lord of lords, as we read in 1 Timothy six fifteen? And finally, what about prophet? 
He is God's spokesman for your day and mine. Do we not recall on the occasion of the Mount of Transfiguration that God said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. He is the one to be heard today. And in Hebrews 1.1, we learn it is He that God now speaks through, not the prophets of the ancient time. Thus, the aspect of His anointing harmonizes so well with scriptural thought. As prophet, as priest, as king, the Lord indeed would be anointed as the one, as God's special emissary to the human family. Some passages there at the top that let each of us see that Christ does fulfill each and every one of those roles. You'll notice beyond verse 24 of our reading, we find in verse 27 there was another thing that this Messiah was to accomplish. We read, in fact, that he in particular was to make a firm covenant. In the King James translation, it reads, He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Jesus, in fact, did bring about a firm covenant. You and I call it the New Testament. The words testament and covenant both come from the same root word, and they mean the same thing. When one speaks about the New Testament, that is the new covenant. This covenant is the one you and I are so blessed to appreciate. And didn't Jesus say, just a few hours before he died, speaking, of course, of that fruit of the vine, of which you and I will be blessed to partake shortly, He said, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Matthew 26, 28. The New Testament, yes indeed, the New Covenant. Daniel had been told this by Gabriel many years before, and the New Covenant has come to pass. That New Covenant is, of course, the ideal one, as the Hebrew writer reminds us. And as you give some thought to what that involves... Hebrews 7.22 tells us that Jesus is indeed the surety for the new covenant. It is based upon Him, His blood, His sacrifice. It is His body, the church, that is the kingdom within it. These thoughts are so wonderful, aren't they, to notice this was written long before Jesus was born. And yet it foretold in detail the blessedness of what the Messiah was going to bring. It's no wonder the Jews looked so expectantly toward the coming of the one that would fulfill this. As you look near the bottom of that slide, you'll notice that verse 27 about its midst tells us one final thing that would be brought about. It says, In the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. You and I will remember that by the time of this writing, for a thousand years since the days of Mount Sinai, the people of God had been offering animal sacrifices, bullocks and goats and sheep and turtle doves and the various other matters, animals whose throats were slid and the blood was sprinkled appropriately as God had said. But here we find something amazing. Gabriel told Daniel, there's coming a day those sacrifices are going to cease. There's coming a day in the midst of this week in which the Messiah appears. The oblation and the sacrifice will be no more. Notice how carefully the chronology is here referenced to the ending of that old Mosaic regime and the coming in of the new covenant and the coming in of the new era. You and I will appreciate that these matters are rather impressive. One would only now have to close the lesson today by asking, What about the chronology? 
What does the 70 weeks mean? Was it literal? Was it symbolic? In either case, where did the counting begin? For I would submit to you, once we knew where to start the counting, any of us could count 70 weeks. It would seem God gives us the answer. Here's how we need to count these matters. First of all, the time element was clearly affirmed to involve some 70 weeks. Literally, as we mentioned earlier, it is 77s. And we've already noted that does not allow one to use 69 of them and then put in a few thousand years at our discretion and then make up the last one. It was a continuous element from the time the count begins. So if we know when to start the counting for the 70 weeks, we should be able rather easily to count until its conclusion. One thing to appreciate rather dramatically is that the word week is not to be taken as a literal thing. We know that, it seems, from so many occurrences in the prophetical writings of the Bible in which a day is symbolically used to represent a year. For instance, in Ezekiel 4, verse 6, that's exactly what's affirmed. God told Ezekiel, let each day represent a year. And a similar matter was told in Numbers 14, verse 34. And of course, the book of Revelation has a number of references like that in which a day was representative of that equal number of years. Taking it then in that regard and in that fashion, notice where that brings us. This particular revelation to Daniel fell virtually at the halfway point of a significant undertaking in God's divine plan. We know that because of this. How many, children, how many years did the children of Israel serve in, in captivity to Babylon? We noted that earlier in the lesson this morning, 70 years. And notice here, 70 weeks is mentioned. If one were to ask, why did God decree that the children of Israel were to be in captivity 70 years? Second Chronicles 36.21 provides us an answer. They were in captivity until the land had had its Sabbaths. Thus, the children of Israel had forsaken. They had failed to keep the Sabbaths of the land for 70 symbolic times. Again, with each one of those days representative of a year, there would, of course, be 70, I'm sorry, 490 days in 70 literal weeks. But if each day represents a year, that's 490 literal years. What God had just affirmed relative to the captivity stretched back 490 years of Israel's failure to obey the Sabbath of the land. But now, with regard to this prophecy, God stretches 490 years into the future and says, Daniel, this is what's going to happen. And when the Messiah comes, this is what shall take place. As you look at those specific events... You'll notice then 490 is the number to be noted. When do we start counting? Isn't it lovely that God has told us when to start counting? Might I direct your attention to verse 25? Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. God said the count for the 70 weeks begins from the going forth of the commandment 
to restore and to build Jerusalem. So when was the commandment given to restore and to build Jerusalem? Whatever year that took place, we need to count 490 years starting from then. Let us see when that took place. After the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, there were three occasions on which the people were allowed to return to the Judean area, to the area of Jerusalem. One of them, led by Zerubbabel, occurred in 536 B.C. You and I find record of that in the opening three chapters of the book of Ezra. However, there was another expedition that returned, led by Ezra himself, in 457 B.C. And there was also a third one led by Nehemiah in the years 445-444 B.C. We find, in fact, the biblical evidence for the other two in the books of, again, Ezra and Nehemiah. Now notice this with me. Turn your attention to the second of those three. Suppose the count begins that you had noticed earlier at 457 B.C. with that second expedition back under the people of Israel as led by Ezra. So first of all, we are told to count seven weeks. Seven weeks would involve 49 days, which would be 49 literal years. That would take us to the year 408 B.C. Sure enough, historically, Jerusalem's walls were rebuilt under Nehemiah in the time frame of that specific era. And furthermore, there was a literal rebuilding of the streets in Jerusalem, fulfilling the first part of Daniel's request and prayer. Remember, he had prayed, God, we would like to return and rebuild these matters, and God answered that prayer. It shall happen in 49 years, beginning with a command to return to, in fact, Jerusalem beneath Ezra. But notice, we're told next we must add 62 weeks to that time. 62 times 7 is from 434. That would be some 434 literal years. So from 408 B.C., we add 434 years. That brings us to 27 A.D. Notice, interestingly, that in verses 25 and 26, supposedly the Messiah was to appear. When we come to 27 A.D., did the Messiah appear? Was he in some way publicly decreed? Yes, he was. That's the very year he was baptized by John the Baptist. The very year he was baptized by John the Baptist. As we look to Luke chapter 3, verse 1, we find that Jesus was baptized in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius. Tiberius began his reign, as you can see, there near the bottom in 13 A.D., Count 15 years from that. Again, 13 is the first year. That takes you to exactly 27 A.D. The scriptures are harmonizing, aren't they? We find Daniel's prophecy coming to tremendous fruition, the one that Gabriel revealed. However, you'll notice there's one more essence to consider. That takes care of 69 of the weeks. What about the 70th one? What about the last week? Notice again in verse 27. It says, He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. In the midst of the week. So that would be three and a half days, which again in the prophetical character would be three and a half years if one counts from the baptism of the Savior. Three and a half years forward. What great event took place. 
the crucifixion of the Son of God. You see, the prophecy that Gabriel had revealed to Daniel foretold the times and scenes and events of what Jesus was to accomplish. His ministry publicly would last three and a half years, and then he was rejected fully and finally and completely, nailed to a cross, and his life came to an end in the flesh. That was all foretold long before it actually happened. He would be cut off. Notice again the language in verse 26. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. In Hebrew, that has reference to his removal, his death. However, it says not for himself. The Lord didn't die because of his sin. He didn't have any of them. He died for yours and mine. It was not for himself. And it happened in the midst of the 70th week. As we can imagine, this prophecy has not gone unnoticed by so many in the way that it dovetails with history and in the proclamation it makes about, in fact, the events of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. This has nothing to do with the end of time in terms of a tribulation or rapture. It has nothing to do with what's yet to happen far distant in the future. These events happened when Jesus came to this earth, publicly ministered and died there in the early part of the first century A.D. Perhaps as we come near the close of our lesson this morning, one final brief thought and the lesson will be yours. Jesus quoted from this passage on one occasion. It's found in Matthew 24, verse 15. And as the Lord quoted from it, He applied it directly to the destruction of Jerusalem in the last part. So as you read this prophecy... And study it, may we remember that, the latter part of verse 27, and also the latter part of verse 26, has reference to that destruction of Jerusalem that was to happen because of the Jewish rejection of Jesus. But those parts speaking about the coming of Christ are so very clear and so very uplifting as we look at the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. This morning, as we've looked at the 70 weeks of Daniel, we found yet again that premillennialism has erred in taking this passage and using it to teach what it does not teach. Rather, on the other hand, we have come to appreciate that God is the master of all of history, and He wrote history before it ever happened, detailing when the Messiah would come, what the Messiah would accomplish, and what would happen to Him as a result of His life here upon earth and His rejection. This very morning... Have you turned your life over to the one who was cut off for you? Again, he didn't die for himself. He died for you and for me, for our sins to be forgiven. Have you responded to him in faith? Have you turned your life over in faithful obedience to him? If you haven't, why delay? Why procrastinate? Why not today? Jesus' plan of salvation reads as follows. Hear the word of God and believe it to be true. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. If we could assist in that way today, we would only ask you to let us know that we can. If you have become a Christian but no longer are faithful to that calling, maybe you've lost sight of the truth of God's control of all of history. If you've done things publicly and others need to appreciate your forgiveness and desire to be forgiven of those matters by God, we each would be happy to pray for you. If today we could do either of those matters, we would only urge you to let us know that at once while together we stand and while we sing.